Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. Monsters are real. Ghosts are too. They live in the human soul. And sometimes they win. I'm Ian Woodworth. I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. And today we are joined by a special guest, Jack Kellum from the website of Gods and Game Masters here to talk with us about homebrewing monsters for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons. Jack, welcome to Undercommon Taste. Thank you very much for having me. Yes, thank you for coming. Yeah, no, I, uh, I've put out quite a few monsters over the last relatively short while. Hopefully, you know, relatively soon, I'll be able to stop referring to it as homebrewing and we can call it third-party production. Nice. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so are these bathtub monsters right now, then? <laughs> oh, no, no. I have a full vat and... Uh, oh, okay. Oh, chemical yeah. setup with them. It's, it's all copper and glass. We're not risking the rot gut here. Okay. Exactly. To make sure. Exactly. So, Jack, let's go ahead and start off a little bit. Tell our listeners who you are, what you do, those sorts of things. All right. Well, first of all, I'm Jack Kellum. I'm also known as Jack the Giant Killer at Jack Gogsbane on Twitter. Primarily what I do is I drink coffee and I know things, mostly about world building, building monsters, building villains, that sort of thing. I do that for... A wide variety of systems, actually. I produce content for D&D 5e, Pathfinder 1st Edition, Scion 1st Edition, Mutants and Masterminds, Chronicles of Darkness, the New World of Darkness from Vampire the Requiem and things like that. Several other systems. I'm competent of doing so in other ones. Those are the ones I do every week. Awesome. Or did until I caught COVID. I, uh, I took a break this week. As you will with COVID. It just takes the wind right out of your sails. It does. I've been running games and making content for tabletop role-playing and LARP for about 40 years now. Oh, wow. I started playing when I was eight years old. I walked into a and b Toys and pointed at the shelf and said, Dad, Dad, get that box set for me so we can play Tolkien at home. <laughs> and uh, I thought I was going to be able to convince him to run the game, but that did not happen. So I ended up an eight-year-old DM. And uh, I've been doing it ever since. That's awesome. I remember KB Toys many, many moons ago. Great shop, though. Indeed. That was specifically the Moldvay basic set. I've actually played a couple of the earlier versions as well, but I came across them afterward. Gotcha. So is that, which box set was that? Was that the white box? Uh, No, that was the first red box, the one with the Irolotus cover. Okay. Oh, okay. All right. So one of the questions we normally ask, what would your real life class be? Um. Almost certainly Bard, but probably a couple of levels in Fighter, maybe a level in Barbarian, because I do lose it sometimes. Um, (laughs) Fair enough. Several of my friends have said they do not want my experience points. (laughs) I've done a lot of things in my life. I was in the military. I've been around the world, a lot of different places, seen a lot of different things. So I'm at least fifth or sixth level, you know. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. But mostly Bard. Respectable. Yeah, I gotta love the Bards, man. Especially after 5th edition. Uh, 3rd edition Bards, uh... 5th edition, the Bards have really come through. I like them. 3rd edition Bards were interesting because they were an attempt, like, at the end of 2nd edition where they were starting to make Bards a thing. Right. As a normal player class. And in 3rd edition, they really tried. And you can do some really cool things with Bards in 3rd edition, 3-5, and Pathfinder. But you're correct. I feel they've come into their own as a real alternative Yes. Yeah, the, yeah. The issue with bards in third edition was you had to get them to survive long enough to become useful. Yes. It's right. kind of like monks in third edition. You know, also true. Early monks, you know, that those first five levels or so 
they are incredibly squishy and they have low output. But once they start getting their extra saves and their extra proficiencies and all of that stuff, then they start really picking up and a medium to high level monk is a force to be reckoned with at the table. It's getting them to that point. (laughs) Very true. And as we transitioned from 3.0 into 3.5 and 3.5 into Pathfinder, they kept trying to figure out different ways to fix the various balance problems you're talking about with the classes. And by the time they got done with Pathfinder 1E, they'd done a pretty good job, which of course means that's when we have to give up and move to an entirely different system. Of course. That's just how it is. I mean, yeah. But uh, I remember my first bard ever was the old traditional kind where you had to be a fighter, a thief, and then become a druid. And nice. Yeah. I got to play one of those. (laughs) Yeah. The only bard that I played in third edition was actually a halfling bard rogue multi-class and so Mm -hmm. i was getting all of my early utility from my levels in rogue getting to a point where i could actually do things and then picking up bard as i went along and once i got about five levels of rogue i had enough oomph to be able to focus really heavy into bard and make that really viable right one of the things that happens is Classes get made for playstyles that don't see a lot of use at the table. Not because the playstyles of the characters are wrong, or the character isn't a cool idea, or the bard was somehow underpowered, for instance, but they were intended for a playstyle that most of the tables didn't indulge in. I could see a that. A playstyle where the skills and the interpersonal interactions and things they brought to the table were far more important than they very often tended to be at most D&D tables. Right. And if it had been more of a court intrigue sort of campaign, as opposed to a standard dungeon crawl sort of game, then a low level bard would really shine in the early game. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And they can do so in a Thieves Guild game as well. Oh, yeah. Also very true. But again, those are relatively rare at your standard D&D tables, or at least they used to be. D&D is widening in that regard, I think, in 5th Ed, but it's still pretty focused on the crush, kill, destroy play loop. Well, I mean, I it, is, it is a glorified combat simulator. It really <laughs> right. is. And I will say that Game of Thrones has really gone a long way to bring, you know, court intrigue and things like that into the mainstream and into more people's stories, you know, where you had kind of that mm-hmm. back and forth. That was so popular for so long. That's kind of snuck itself into culture in a lot of game systems, I think. So that is definitely a plus. I play a whole bunch of different games, like I said, GURPS among them. And one of the things that I've come to realize is no game, even the ones that build themselves as universal, possibly especially them, is good at everything. Yeah. And what game you decide to play at your table depends on what experience you're looking for and what you want to do. Sometimes you really just want to experience the basic D&D style fantasy, part power fantasy, part lack of moral conundrum that goes along with it. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes you want to do something complicated where you don't know if the guy next to you is your friend or your enemy, and neither of you is necessarily a good person. But that's not the kind of story that D&D excels at. Right. And this brings up something we talk about a lot, but the importance of a zero session. When you sit down and you ask them what kind of story do they want, what are their expectations, what do they want? Is it going to be camp? Is it going to be serious? Is it going to be dark? Is it going to be frivolous? Is it going to be all murder hobo all the time? Or is it going to be more role play? I even start getting into that before session zero. What I would think of as pre-session or even session negative one, where you're like, okay, what are we playing? Because before we even get into lines and veils, before we get into what people can handle happening at the table and what they can't, 
the initial question of what are we playing can be answered in so many different ways. Okay, are we going to build a world together today using the fate system, for instance? Do we just want to play D&D? Which kind of D&D do we want to play? Right. And all of those questions you need to have answered before you actually come to the table for session zero so you have the right books. This is true. I can see that, yeah. And I also, because I have a lot of people in my friend groups that want to play games with me, I'm lucky like that, but, you know, I have to go to them and say, okay, this is the style of game that I'm looking to run. Would you be interested in playing this? Right. You find which people are interested in which ideas. Right. And I know my friends and the different cliques of my friend groups, and I know who will play nice with whom and where they're going to have issues playing together at the same table. And so I can sort of tailor my group around the game that I want to run and the game that they Mm -hmm. want to play. And that helps a lot with that. If I wanted to run a court intrigue game, I would come out and say, hey, I want to run a court intrigue game. Are you interested? Yeah. I ran a uh, court intrigue game in Pathfinder 1E set in a drow city with all of the PCs as part of the same house. Okay. And with the agreement that there could be some minor betrayals in-house, but mostly they would focus their animosity and efforts on the uh, other houses and the external foes. We were not done with it, but it really turned out to be a very deep game. That sounds like that would be a lot of fun. And I like that rule where, okay, you know, there can be some betrayal within the house, but set hard limits because if you start doing that within your house, obviously you're going to become a pariah or something like that. Right. Then the amount that you can try to sneak and get away with makes it even more critical or more potent, I guess you would say. So yeah, I like that concept a lot. That's a great idea. The Pathfinder approach to Drow Cities makes it much more interesting, of course, because you've got all these different demon lords. You're not just dealing with everybody worships Lolf. Okay. Okay, so we... One topic. <laughs> yeah, all of this talking about campaigns and characters and all of that is great and all, but that's not why we asked you to come on today. That's true. As we mentioned in our episode a couple weeks back where we were talking about liches, that whole episode was inspired by a write-up that you did for the Arch Lich, mm-hmm. where, if I remember correctly, it was inspired by the Vecna dossier that wizards put out and that you said you weren't overly thrilled with the stat block that they gave for Vecna. Is that accurate? Uh, That's pretty accurate. It's kind of an understatement of uh, my perspective on it. I was underwhelmed. The way they put together Vecna was interesting and the ideas they had were interesting. Some of the unique ways to use his special abilities, but this is Vecna we're talking about. First of all, they say their stat block is CR 26. Looking at the block, His highest damage output spell, because he doesn't even have spells, which is a big problem in and of itself, but I'll get into that in a minute, does less than half of what a ninth level spell would do. And this is supposed to be the ultimate lich. This is the guy who, in the early years of the game, we didn't think of him as a lich that you could fight. All we knew was his leftovers, his hand and his eye would mess up everything. If a villain got a hold of those, that villain was nearly unstoppable, just with his hand and eye. Vecna was always this super big, big bad. Right. He was the monster that parents told their kids about before bed. So, you know, if you don't behave, Vecna is going to come get you, that kind of thing. Right. His name's even an anagram of Vance, Jack Vance, right. on whom they based the Vancean spellcasting system that D&D is so heavily entrenched in. 
sometimes to its own dismay and horror. (laughs) And we actually did an episode on Vecna last week. Yes. And, Mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that they did canonically to just emphasize how powerful Vecna was, was at the beginning of the Vecna Lives module, the Circle of Eight, which are eight of the most powerful wizards in the Greyhawk setting, walk into Mm -hmm. the room where he is entombed, and he murks them all in four rounds. Yeah, he just raffles right. them hard. <laughs> and these are all casters who are 17th level or higher minimum. Yeah. They right. all have ninth level spells. These people are some of the most skilled and dangerous spell casters on the planet, originally played by the people who built the Greyhawk that some of us grew up knowing and loving. Right. Right. And they're big names. Otto and Odaluk and Bigby, Bigby and Nistol. Yep. Yeah, it's and a, all these people, yeah, right? Intenser. Yeah. So if he's capable of taking them out, you have to build him that way. Right. Right. But I will, like I, said, they, I will counter that according to the write-up, this particular Vecna that they released was pre-Ascension Vecna. Yes. Absolutely. But even pre-Ascension Vecna was one of the most powerful Archmages oh, yes. of his absolute play. Yes. And had already become a Lich. Mm-hmm. And already had the Book of Vile Darkness. Yes. And had already lost a hand and eye, even if he had Not he lost quite. a hand and eye to Koss when Koss tried to kill him. That was before his Did, ascension. This, yeah. this write-up, Koss attacked him during the ritual to ascend. Ah, right. Okay, see, I read the write-up and I didn't so, catch so that So this yeah. Vecna, this year 26 Vecna, he still has both hands and both eyes. He yeah, hasn't lost a hand and eye yet. That, right. Yeah, that's quite obvious from the picture, which bothered me to begin with. Yeah. Why are we giving this right up? Right. But here's the other thing. CR 26 is supposed to be, okay, I take a top end party near the end of their campaign, mm-hmm. if not at the end. And I take this guy and I fight this top end party with him. The way they built him, that would not happen. No. No. No, absolutely so He not. could not stand against a full party by himself. No. No. Not even for a round. I would be willing to bet... I could take a party of four 10th level well-built characters and beat him. Ooh, I kind of want to play test that. I mean, we can't do that today, but like we did our March I Madness. Would, I'd be totally willing to either run PCs against their version of him or run their version of him as intelligently as I can against PCs and then demonstrate the difference between his arc and mine. Okay. Yeah. And that was something Ian and I did back in March as we did our March Madness. So we took, you know, the highest CR monsters per the book and ran them through. Now going through a couple of the abilities they do have, he has that teleport ability where within 15 feet, he does damage and then he heals like 80 points. Mm-hmm. That yeah, is a I actually, huge, um, huge ability. And it's very cool. And it's very dynamic. Like I said, they did some really cool stuff with the build and I kept that aspect of the build, but it just doesn't swing hard enough. Right. One, it doesn't swing hard enough Two. This guy is the ultimate B in BBEG. Yes. He's not just supposed to be there for one fight. Yeah. He's not just supposed to be, okay, this is what I can do on the table suddenly when I'm surprised by the player characters. Like, that, first of all, should not happen. Oh, yeah. Vecna would know everything as they walked in. He knows what's coming. He knows what's going on. He's lured you to wherever he wants to fight you, unless he's required by a ritual to be a specific place. So if he doesn't have legendary actions, which they didn't give him, he doesn't have their actions. They did, but they did give him extra reactions. They did, and I kept that too, but extra reactions by themselves aren't enough to balance the action economy, especially when even with those extra reactions, 
none of the individual things he's doing are hitting hard enough for them to care. Yeah. And okay, great. I can do this thing. That's just like finger of death. And the person comes back as a zombie. And what is a zombie doing on the battlefield? That means anything, especially against characters that are at that level. Yeah, exactly. In addition, you've got, how did he come up with his schemes? How does he interact with anything? He doesn't have a spell book. He doesn't have spells. He has a few things he can do over and over and over again, So, but he doesn't have a spell book. This isn't a wizard anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, per the dossier, they kind of imply that the Book of Vile Darkness is his spell tome, and you can cast from it. And it's a little blurb saying, here's what we have, and then if you want to cast from the Book of Vile Darkness, you can. But they should have definitely kicked that in and given him... That's not the sort of thing that's a subnote. Yeah, I know. I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. Because you have to know not only what the character... I think this is a problem that Wizards has at the moment. And I understand the philosophy. They're like, okay, we're trying to simplify the monster so that people can run them more easily at the table. Here's the problem. If you simplify the monster down to just what they can do in a fight, then you forget what they're capable of. You forget what they did during the planning time, what they set up, Yes. what else they're doing in the background. You need to know what spells a wizard especially is capable of, at the very least what he commonly has memorized. But even so far as knowing everything that might be in his spell book so that you know how he can react to any given situation. Because there's so many things that he doesn't have to have the spell up or cast, but it has already affected what's going on. Okay. No, I like that. That is a great consideration when you think about it. Because again, the types of spells a wizard is going to know will innately influence their philosophy, their personality, their battle plans, their strategy, what they're going to rely on. Are they going to be, I mean, breaking into WoW, are they a Frost Mage, a Cryo Mage, an Arcane I mean, even those types Mm -hmm. of styles or the school they would prefer. And Mm -hmm. that would flavor a huge encounter. And I agree with what you were saying earlier. Vecna is not going to be surprised by the party. By the time Vecna meets or approaches the party he knows who they are he knows their history he knows their family history he knows their blood type he knows their bank accounts he has everything about them he has their actual madison account password (laughs) exactly (laughs) he's only allowing the fight for two reasons one he needs to fight them for some reason he needs to let them try to fight him for some reason okay otherwise he avoids it yeah yeah he is an immortal super genius lich he's not going to be there for them to fight unless there's something in that for him to gain. And that is another point that I want to bring up with that stat block is they didn't give him enough intelligence. No, 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 no. no. In not. that stat block, he has a 22 int and a 24 wisdom. He is supposed first to. First of all, why is wisdom higher than his intelligence? He's an arcane caster. Yes, that's the wrong. first thing. He should have a high wisdom <laughs> yeah. because yeah. he's alert and he's super strong willed. But his highest stat absolutely should be intelligence. Yeah, he yeah. should have a minimum of 25 intelligence, the yeah. absolute minimum. I yeah, mean, that is completely a minimum. Let me, if I recall correctly, as he was presented in the second edition modules, he had an intelligence of at least 25 in, in all of those modules. So I believe so. Yes. I mean, he is a super genius. Yes. He is the wily Coyote, but not near as clumsy. Everything he is, he gained via his extraordinary intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yes. He got there on his own with his power. Even my arc lich is toned down slightly from the kind of stats I would have given him in second or third ed, obviously. But I gave him a 24 intelligence, 22 wisdom. You know, and another thing, they've already introduced things like the mythic traits in Theros, right? What in the mythology of D&D is more mythic than someone like Vecna? Yes, absolutely. Vecna is the original lich. Yeah. Right. 
So using that, I built him with the mythic traits and mythic template so that, yeah, you'll beat him once. First of all, he's CR 30, not CR 26. Once you've beaten him once, he powers up again. So when you beat him, if you beat him, you're getting all the benefits of beating a CR 30 twice. Okay. Round two. I very quickly left out the hand and eye because that version is missing them. And if he gets them back, he can forget it. Nice. At that point, it's literally gods. And uh, that's a different game than we have the statistics to run initial edition. Right. Yeah. And I kind of wish that they would release sort of guidelines for proper epic level fifth edition. Yes. You would have to restructure a lot of the top end monsters in order to accommodate that. But something that would actually properly allow you to proceed past level 20 beyond the extraordinary boons that happen to be in the back of the DMG because they do have guidelines on these are the things that you can add to your character as they mm-hmm. gain additional experience points once they have hit level 20. Yeah. And some of them are very cool. Yeah. And actually represent an impressive increase in your abilities. Mm-hmm. Even at super high levels, an additional feat can still be very useful. Yes. Some of the boons are like, eh, once per long rest, I hit even if I missed. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty good. One of them is I gain 60 max hit points. I think, though, John, you touched on something. You brushed right past that. I would absolutely love. I want a divine monster manual that has the stats of just give me the most basic pantheons. Give those gods some stats so I can drop them on the table. And let's do a true Clash of the Titans. I know why they didn't. I do, too. I don't disagree with you, (laughs) but I know why they didn't. And it goes back again to the early days of D&D when you looked at the stats in the deities and demigods. And these were eminently killable gods. Gotcha. I know, because we did it. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. And, <laughs> Lots of them. and I think it was actually attributed to Gary Gygax, quoted, the problem with giving stats to gods is that then the players want to go kill gods. And there's just nothing saying. wrong with that per <laughs> se, but you have got to make sure that there's a dividing line, yes. a legitimate dividing line somewhere between the legendary and the truly epic and the truly mythic. Yes. That, you know, you have to be at least this tall to ride this ride. Mm-hmm. Even if the Once gods- you have gone through your full career as an adventurer in D&D, you absolutely could become the kind of hero that kills a god. The great heroes of Greek myth, the great heroes of any number of stories have been those levels of hero. Right. Well, I mean, throughout D&D lore, you have a number of mortals who have ascended to godhood. You've got people like Kelimvor and Vecna. Well, there's a whole bunch of them that happened during the time of trouble, like Kelimvor and Midnight and the rest of that. But yes, the ability to ascend to godhood is definitely something that's been on the table from the very beginning because it's in the fiction. Right. Right. It has to be in the fiction. If you can't ascend to godhood, then half of the plots of the best villains we've ever seen aren't worth anything. Yeah. All right. So here's my question, just to pick your brain as Mm. someone else who does homebrew monsters, where do you start whenever you're wanting to make a monster? I start a lot of different places. Very often. I start with real world mythology. Mm -hmm. I start with monsters that I know about from real world myths because I've been studying them even longer than I've been running games. I read, you know, Norse and Greek mythology out of the encyclopedia when I was six and just went crazy from there. I've studied mythology from all over the world, from the Amatsukami to the Aztlanti gods of the Aztecs to the Sumerian mythos, the various levels of the Sumerian and Mesopotamian and Babylonian mythos, etc. Myth and folklore are such a super rich source of Absolutely. monsters. Absolutely. 
a lot of the monsters we're used to obviously come from these myths and folklore mm-hmm. originally. Some of them filtered through fantasy novels first, which is why we have very specific ideas of what orcs and goblins are. But if you go back to the original stuff and you go for something you haven't seen somebody build already or something that at least hasn't been built officially and you come out with your own take on it. One of the sets of monsters that I'm collecting that I've put out for my patrons is a new subgroup of monster called the Fomor. All of the ancient Irish mythological villains that are similar kind of to the Jotun of Norse myth and to some of the other, like the Titans of Greek myth. They're an ancient pseudo-deific inimical force. And I've taken dark fae and giants and dragons and all sorts of things and lumped them together into this subgroup called the Fomor, which is an extra-dimensional group of beings. Nice. And what's fun with that is then I can go to all of the Celtic mythologies and build a Fomor version of that fae creature, for instance. The Fomor version of the Red Cap is not exactly like whatever version of the Red Cap that Kobold Press or Paizo came out with. Okay. I've created something I call the Fomorian D-Pounds, which are the Fomors equivalent to the Kushi or the dogs of the Fae. Like the Barghests, kind of? Kind of, except that mythologically speaking, Fomor are either from deep under the earth or deep under the water, and sometimes right. it implies both. Yes. So with the D-Pounds, all of the Fomor actually are amphibious. Okay. Resistant to cold, resistant to acid. Because wherever they're from, their alternate world is a place that's only reachable from deep under, whether it's underwater or under earth or both. And it kind of encroaches on the prime material in different places, in different ways, and they kind of pour out and try to take it over. It's like this sort of mobile abyss. Okay. Okay. I like you bring up the wolves and stuff, the D-pounds. They make me think, so, you know, they think biologically that whales and the cetaceans in general were mm-hmm. wolves that returned to the ocean and their bodies actually morphed back into a more sea-adapted it's, Especially creature. when you're looking at their behavior, this is especially likely when you're looking at things like orca. Exactly. So, you know, that D-pound could be like this early proto-whale cetacean type, thing, and that would be freaking terrifying. It sort of is. <laughs> yeah. But one of the other things the Fulmore do is they have a really disturbing disdain for physics. Nice. Yeah, screw physics. We don't the D-pound <laughs> specifically, the way it manifests for them is that as long as their feet are touching a surface, they can run on it. Oh, nice. Regardless of which direction gravity is or any of those okay. things. Whereas their feline equivalent, which is colloquially known as a kark or cat shark, the Fomor cat swims through solid matter. Ooh. It doesn't burrow. It swims and it treats it as if it's water for breathing purposes. Oh my. That is a big bag of nope for me. I'm out on that one. <laughs> it's proper land sharks. Yes, it is. Correct. Not just land sharks, though, because they can come out of the wall, right. floor, your couch. <laughs> <laughs> now, I don't know if you're a fan of Jim Butcher or not. Ian and I are, are, yes. are both large Jim Butcher fans, but he Absolutely. does bring in a start of introduction into the Fulmore in the later books. And I think that's uh, a- even more so than just a start, but yes. But uh, yes I yes. am caught up on the Jim Butcher Harry Excellent. Dresden series, I- and I do like his Fulmore. I'm not using the same ones he is. Yeah, I know where I- he's gotten his sources. I've gone a little further back to some of the more traditional sources. For instance, the most common Fulmore in my monster grouping are humanoid goat-headed people. Okay. So not quite Which is one of the mythological yeah. descriptions yeah. of it. Okay. 
from my perspective, personally, whenever I'm creating monsters, I like going back to the older editions of D&D and finding the ones that weren't brought forward. Yeah. Not only that, but sometimes ones that were brought forward disappointingly. Yeah. <laughs> things, oh, excuse me. Things like, you know, how ropers used to be absolutely terrifying and yeah, now right. they're CR5. Right. <laughs> A big example of that is fairly recently I put out my version of the Trask. Okay. Which is, in fact, once again, using the mythic traits and things from Theros because once something like that exists as a mechanic in the D&D multiverse, the one creature you should already have built this way is, Terry. is the Trask. Yeah, is Uncle Terry. Yeah. Yeah. My version also goes back to, again, some of the earlier mythological stuff. My Tarask has a breath weapon. Okay. Because the actual Tarask dragon thing that they pulled out of the water in France breathe poisonous gas or acidic vapor. It wasn't really clear which one it was. Right. And that is something that I don't think a lot of people realize is that it is a medieval European monster. It, I actually it, was it unaware is. of that. Yeah. There's a, so there's a town in France that has a giant Tarrasque statue. Mm -hmm. The Tarrasque and the Gargouille both actually come about in almost the same time period with similar stories as a dragon is killed by generally a saintly maiden who tames it and then leads it into town and the townspeople kill it and they take its head and they cut it off and they use it to scare off other evil things. And this is where gargoyles come from. Right, yeah. Yeah. And that is also, if you take enough derivatives of it, that's also where the D&D monster, the Varguil, comes from. Yes. Correct. Because that is an undead head that removes itself from the corpse yes. as part of the Curse of Undeath. Indeed. Yeah, but I love, especially going through the second edition books and finding all of these really cool monsters that haven't been brought forward. There were a couple that we came across a couple weeks ago when we did the first part of our Bitopia episode. There's mm -hmm. one called The Ethic, which is the Cyclopean lemur <laughs> that can affect the emotions of the people it perceives as its enemies. And is it Cyclopean in that it has one eye or yes. Cyclopean in size? Okay. Cyclopean in yeah. that it has one eye. It is lemur-sized, but it just has mm. this one glowing yellow eye, and it can affect the emotions of the things that it perceives as enemies, and it makes one of those enemies very confrontational towards its allies. It's like, so they have a pack of wolves, and it picks Wolf A to target for its ability, and Wolf A all of a sudden really doesn't like Wolf B. And so right. the entire pack ends up devolving into infighting as this effect takes effect on multiple targets within the pack. And during all the confusion and chaos, the ethic escapes. Yeah. It, that's its defense mechanism. Sounds and like it might have uh, some associations with the Nothic. I can see that connection. Yeah. And of course, the Nothic is connected to Vecna. So, yeah. you know, bring yeah. it around. And then the other one that was the absolute nightmare fuel for the night was called <laughs> Nyath, which are these tying into your talking about your Fomorians and their uh, disregard for physics. Mm -hmm. Nyaths disregard gravity. They right. fly by ignoring gravity and going yeah. where they want to go because they evolved in that transitional place between the two layers of Bitopia where gravity shifts from down to one to down to the other. And so they just straight up ignore gravity and one of their abilities is they can smack something with their tail and if their attack roll beat the uh, armor class by four points or more they hit their target with a localized 
random direction reverse gravity <laughs> that yeets them a hundred feet in a random direction. <laughs> yeah, those things are fun. And of course, and if I, there's something there, then they've just fallen a hundred. Yeah, exactly. And if something stops them, then they take fall damage for however far they went. <laughs> they went. Yep. Now, Ian had brought up in the notes, and I'm kind of sad he didn't remember this time too. But then, uh, then I, asked, you know, in our post notes, he was like, "I should have mentioned uh, they fly like the heart of gold, where they aim at the ground and miss." <laughs> yeah, they use the Douglas Adams version of flying. <laughs> they they throw themselves yep. at the ground and miss. <laughs> one of the other things, ideas are one thing. Ideas can be really easy, mm-hmm. actually, especially when you're as entrenched in myth and folklore as I am, and you've read as many games as I have, and you watch and read science fiction and fantasy and horror, well, ideas are going to come from everywhere. Yeah. Making a monster, just like actually sitting down to create anything, the next stage is sometimes the more complicated one. Okay, what do I want to do to make this more interesting? What is it that makes this interesting? How do I translate that to the page? Yes. Okay. How do I translate to that something somebody can use in a game. And one of the useful things I've discovered very recently is two things. Conceptually, go back to the nearest monster block to what you're working toward that already exists. Take a look at that. Use that as a basis. Work out from there. To get very specific, there's a website, tetracube.com. Okay. What it has, it has every single stat block available in the SRD or in the open game license from Kobold Press. Oh, very nice. So that you can use them to build anything you want off of. So what you do is you click that monster stat block, and it populates all the fields. And then you can edit any of the fields and edit in the powers and abilities until you get the exact monster you want. And then it outputs it in a format that looks very similar to the Wizards of the Coast format. Oh, very, very nice. So it's a very helpful mechanical tool for doing the grunt work of monster creation. Very nice. Which I thought would be a good idea to bring up in this case, since a lot of people are like, but then how do you know how to do this and that? Some of the grunt work is done for you guys. Templates <laughs> you are, find templates stuff are online and take advantage of it. One of the other tools I use a lot because their CR evaluations tend to be better than if you try to just work it from the DMG, which is really unclear. It is. We, we tried that on an episode. Yes. The issue with that is it doesn't take into account spellcasting. It does not. It does not. That is the issue with the CR calculations on page 278 in the DMG. That's one of the issues. There are a couple of other ones. That's for the instance, big one for me. Oh, absolutely. Because spellcasting is such a... There's a variety of things that it does to your situation. Right. It's so broadens your capabilities. You have to take into account, sure, one of those spells may up the creature's damage for a round, but that's not what makes it more dangerous, honestly. The other thing about it is 5e tools. Yeah, it's 5e.tools slash CR calculator. Okay. This thing, you put in all the stats, it's hit dice, it's constitution, it's size. The damage per round, attack, save DC, whether it's got vulnerabilities, resistances, and immunities. And it gives you a general ballpark of the CR. And there's a number of the special abilities you can click, and it'll tell you what effect those have on the CR. You still, of course, have to eyeball it. Because as you mentioned, none of these things take into account things like spellcasting. They don't take into account things like legendary abilities and what that actually does to the overall power level of the creature. Right. Right. Yeah. But something I really want to make sure people are aware of, if they say it's CR6, they don't mean four PCs are going to have a hard time with this creature at level six. That is not what they mean. No. What they mean is four PCs will have to expend significant amount of resources 
they may have no difficulty at all. They will have to expend a certain amount of resources. Yeah. If you want a satisfying boss fight, even after you've figured out the vagaries of CR, you want a satisfying boss fight, your minimum is four higher than the party. And I've gone as high as eight. Okay, that makes sense. And that is a hard benchmark to learn. So that is a beautiful piece of device to throw out there. Now, don't get me wrong. It can be very swingy. Yeah. yeah. It can depend on your PCs. It can depend on whether their characters are optimized or not. It can depend on whether they're thinking straight that day. Yes. Right. And there are some monsters that punch way above their challenge oh, yeah. rating. Like they yeah. do. Like the Will-O-Wisp is a CR2. Yep. And it'll wreck your it day. It will wreck your day. <laughs> there are CR1s and 2s that can be really, really difficult to deal with. Okay. Zombie. A zombie is a CR1 half. Right. Right? If your dice are hot and it refuses to die, mm -hmm. it is not easy for a first level party to handle, even if there's only one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, I had a campaign just pre-COVID that I had um, a party of, they were level one, not quite level two. And it was just a pack of four kobolds. But again, they hit, they ambushed one party member, they dropped it, they went for the second, and they almost steamrolled my party at level one just because the dice were going good. You know, they had pack tactics, so they had advantage on their attack rolls, and they were just going and going and going. And it's like, I'll do you one better. <laughs> okay. Smaller than kobolds and yet scarier at first level. Okay. Germlanes. Germlanes. Okay. One, if you're only using dark vision, you can't see them. They're invisible. Ooh. So if you're going down into the dark without a light, which a lot of people are like, hi, I have dark vision. You can't see these guys. They're Ooh. automatically invisible. Two, they do really low damage, right? Okay. One die four plus one somewhere yeah. in there, X-based. But if two of them are beside each other, they do an extra D4 of damage. Oh, that adds up quick. <laughs> you can't see them. They're attacking you at a distance with darts. So they're at advantage and they're each doing two die four plus one. Yeah, that could ruin the party up. fast. Very fast. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I like it. Now, I was happy that the players I took through this scenario, because this is actually a scenario I've written and I plan to publish, the players I took through this scenario were a bunch of kids. Okay. But one of them was smart enough to go, we're going down into the sewers. I realize most of us can see in the dark, but I'm going to carry a hooded lantern. You'd be surprised what kids think of that adults won't. Yeah, if he hadn't chosen to do that, they would have all been ambushed. Nice. And they would have all been murked by invisible <laughs> rat people. Yeah, little rat people who have half as many hit points as a kobold. Wow. Yeah, I mean, in third edition, I think they were either a CR 1 8 or a CR 0. Wow. They yeah. were not. They had like yeah, a... These guys are actually lower CR than kobolds, even in fifth edition. I, that has to be from a third party source because they haven't, to my knowledge, been. I uh, know uh, it was in a. It's a Wizards of the Coast source, but was it was it in Wild Beyond the Witchlight. No, it was published in one of their like only online things. Okay. okay. Yeah. All right. That explains why I don't remember seeing it because yeah, I remember that, coming it, across them in the third edition. I think they're in Monster Manual too. Yeah. Same thing with the uh, Zvarts, which I'm also using in the, the same game. They show up in the same supplement. I think the Zvarts are in Volos. Yeah, that they are now. Yeah. Familiar, right. Yeah. But yeah, in that particular set of modules, which is my Black Swamp series, I've only got one of them actually published, which is part six. Blame Star Wars. <laughs> Starting at the end and working towards the beginning? Pretty much. The level one module that I playtested with those kids is what I was just talking okay. about. It's, it's uh, set in my Black Swamp, which it's setting generic, meaning you can drop it into any one of the various D&D worlds, but it's a subsetting. I'm working on a place called Marshcliff, which is a base town, and then all the adventures out into the swamp from there. Okay. Okay. Anyway, that's not what we're here for. <laughs> the point was that those monsters, like you pointed out, some of the monsters can hit way above their weight class, and CR can be very misleading. You have always got to weigh the individual monsters and their capabilities against your characters. 
Yeah. You yeah. can't just look at the numbers and go, oh, this will be fine. Yeah. And as a DM too, party composition is an issue as well. I mean, if you're having, you know, the all bard party or the all mage party, or, you know, we did an all cleric party. And so, in some cases, those all whatever parties can actually be way more effective. Sometimes, yeah. Possible. Right. So you need to know, you know, is there a meat shield? Is there spellcasters? Are there support? So yeah, you do need to be aware of what your party is bringing too, because you can mismatch with the monster. As a DM, you can try to do that if you're trying to be more adversarial or more challenging, but generally you don't want to, but it can be an option. But yeah. That's uh, something that made me think. I was just talking about if you want a good boss monster building eight levels above the party. Flip that around too, though. You want to make sure in any set of encounters, especially across a whole adventure, that your PCs have time and a chance to really shine, to show off how good they are. Yes. Let them have a fight that's legitimately easy. Yeah. yeah. It can be large numbers of foes, but make them legitimately easy so you can get scenes like the fight between Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and the orcs at the edge of the river. Right. Where none of the PCs are ever actually at risk, except for the one who's off here isolated in a separate scene. They're not actually at risk, but there's this great big scene and they're able to show just how badass they are with killing all the monsters. No, that is a great way to like, especially like mid campaign, mid arc, you know, you have that session and you just kind of wrap it up by just raffle stomping a bunch of stuff that kind of gives everyone that high and that kind of rush. And it definitely Mm -hmm. wants to bring them back to the table. And then you can start, well, okay, you wipe these guys out. And then this thing happened you guys weren't expecting. And there's right. your hook. So now they're on this rush, but, oh, crap, we missed that. Well, we can go handle it now because we're obviously badass. So, yeah, and no, I love that. It's a great thing to have because they need to know that they're exceptional characters. Yeah. So that when they do face something that is giving them a really hard time, they know that that matters. Because they know that that they know big that not everything in the world is easy not everything in the world is hard no the big boss fight that's hard right but most of the things you run into well hey man you're especially if you're fifth level or higher you're a freaking hero you're not just some guardsman from town yeah Yeah. i mean that to to put that into context for something from pop culture that listeners will be able to associate that with that transition from the Whitestone arc to the Thordak arc in campaign one of Critical Role. Yeah. Where, you know, they're on this high having finally defeated the Briar Woods and they roll back into Amon and they're all, we're the big heroes. And then the ancient dragons just sort of descend on the city and they have to <laughs> run away because they don't have the firepower to take on an ancient dragon, let alone four. And that takes that initial hit to say, okay, yeah, we're big and bad, but now we have a benchmark. Right. So we have to build up to the benchmark to where we can take out these new guy. Yeah, there's always at least two aspects to that. And that's, again, there's always somebody bigger. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're the person who's bigger. Yeah. Sometimes you're not. And if you really want to get a group of PCs invested in the game, they need to encounter the bad guy early. They don't necessarily have to see them in person. But if you can manage it, it's better. Yeah. And that's- the more personally they know the antagonist, the more times they have to encounter that antagonist without having a chance to do anything about them, the better the payoff at the end. Yes, I agree with now, that. Now, you have to be a little bit careful because you can take that too far and just frustrate the heck out of them. 
Yeah. I was going to say, and that's one thing we brought up last week with our Vecna episode, as Ian brought out with the start of Vecna Lives, where he does raffle stomp all of those elite mages, you know. And they even say in the text that Ian read, you know, this is a bad start explain this is how the module's written. But that is very much a JRPG video game trope, is you have that first encounter with your big bad, generally level one, level two at a fairly low level, so you can see how strong it is and how it's just going to wipe the floor with you. And then you spend the rest of the game getting up to a comparable level where you can fight them. And generally there is a mid-arc or mid-scene encounter where you might not get to fight them, but it's just on the outskirts of where you're at. And you kind of, okay, well, I'm closer, not quite there. And then I'm closer, not quite there. And then you're toe-to-toe. Right. Now, there's one thing I've done in the past a couple of times which can be very satisfying, and that is having the BBEG be just a couple of levels ahead. Say your first level party encounters them when they're third or fourth. Now what you have is this bad guy who is getting slowly more competent at about the same rate as the PCs. And they're thwarting them in their early years, but maybe they escape. And then they have to thwart them again later when they come back with a bigger, badder plan, etc., etc., until finally they even up at the end or get close. And then they've developed with this villain. This isn't a villain who was pre-existing and super badass. No, they watched this guy turn from a sheep stealer to a destroyer of nations. Okay, yeah, I like that. Yeah, That can be really, really visceral. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. And that was a mechanic that was brought out in the Call of the Netherdeep book, is trying to codify having a rival party that's Mm -hmm. not necessarily an antagonist, but just another group that was operating alongside the party, that their paths would diverge, and then they would come right. together. You're both trying to get to the same goal at the same time, and maybe you're competing sometimes, and maybe you're not. Yeah. That's also very cool. I but think- I hadn't seen a lot of people use the villain growing up Yeah, the same way. That is also a really interesting idea. You've taken the time way back when, I don't know if they're still making comics, but uh, Order of the Stick. Yes, they are. I had a party like that, that kind of ran beside and, you know, so that they did yeah, use that, which is are. very uh, fun. The comics are still running. Okay. I check them online every couple of weeks and they are still after that same Sorcerer Lich. Awesome. Uh, they're Zion? trying to stop him from opening a gate and destroying everything, which is really funny because he doesn't even realize that's going to happen. He's <laughs> a Sorcerer Lich and he's not super bright. He's right. running CERN. <laughs> yeah it's really funny of course because as you know if you paid attention to order of the stick they have an 18 intelligence fighter yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah the fundamental arc of making monsters of making bad guys in general but monsters as well is ideas come from everywhere yes so read listen watch everything that you would be entertained by there's a good chance there's an inspiration for a villain or a monster in it, especially when you go back to old folklore, because those are things that scared people back then, Yeah, Mm -hmm. which means they're probably fundamental to the human condition. And you can update them to the modern perspective, even without updating them to modern day necessarily, although I do that too because I run GURPS and all these other games. But for D&D, for the medieval slash renaissance mindset, you can still update these creatures in such a way that they fit into whatever world or milieu you're using. So grab your inspiration from everywhere. Then you look at what the nearest critters in the system you're using are and wangle them into the shape you want from there. Hopefully you can figure out a couple of interesting or pseudo-unique special abilities that they have, but that's not nearly as important as making sure they feel right. Right. Yeah, Yeah, I get that. 
Like, I think a book of, like, U.S. cryptids would make a great monster text to have something like, obviously, you'd have, like, Yeti. You might have a Wendigo or a Skinwalker or something like that. I think these would be great U.S. lore to kind of throw in. They would. Kinda... However, the Northeast tribes prefer that you not use... Certain names. The W word. Yes, and the S word, too. And so, yeah. the Navajo actually uh, have the same request about yes. the shapeshifters that the, you the, uh, the Fleshwalker, as people have called it as well. <laughs> yeah, I know this for a very specific reason, because I checked with a Dine friend of mine. Okay. I'm running a GURPS actual play set in Arizona next month Okay. for uh, reproductive rights. And I knew a lot about that particular monstrous archetype. And I was like, ooh, these are really cool. They could you know, be like the Native American yeah. equivalent to the okay. vampire lord yeah. in terms of their power and, and versatility. The problem is, is that they're literally taboo and using them is offensive. Oh, okay. Then that brings up a wonderful point. And it's things that, you know, you know, cultural appropriation, being respectful of the cultures you are borrowing from. So thank you very much for pointing that out. And yeah, so I did not mean to step on toes, but thank you. You probably didn't know because most people yeah. don't. No, yeah, I, I was unaware. They've been used in tons of pop culture stuff. Right. Like they've been on Supernatural. They've been in all these things. Why would you think that they were something that might offend people? They should have done right. their research, right? Yeah, correct. Yeah, no, they didn't. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm particularly sensitive to it because I myself am Cherokee, Choctaw, and Seminole. Oh, excellent. But I also try to be respectful of everybody else too. Yeah. Like before I write something for the Inuit, I try to get a hold of someone from that culture. When I write something for Hawaii, which I actually have had several things coming out of Hawaii recently because I have a uh, Scion game set there. Luckily, I have a couple of friends online who are native Hawaiians who are more than willing to tell me which things I'm allowed to play with and which ones not to mess with. <laughs> no, that is a great example to follow. So thank you. All right. So I have one last question regarding <laughs> your homebrew method before we get into the monster mashup, because we did talk about challenge ratings for a while. Do you aim towards a challenge rating for the design of the monster or do you design the monster and then figure out the challenge rating later? Typically. I would say about half and half. Okay. If I'm designing for a specific situation in a game, then I need it to be at a certain CR. If on the other hand, I am designing simply because here's this monster I know about or idea I've had for a monster, then I will build and figure out what the CR is at the end. So it really depends on whether I'm purpose building for a scene in a game that I intend to run or that I want to have happen at a certain level, or if I just want to make a monster that fulfills this specific role and concept. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That, yeah, that is, that's, that's, <laughs> that's pretty close to my methodology too, because a lot of what I do is translating older monsters to the current edition. I do have a ballpark that it was already in. Yeah, and you have a general idea of what levels you would expect to run into something like that at. Right. Not that those were necessarily reasonable at no. the time. <laughs> <laughs> like the first time you ever ran into any of the level draining undead, you're like, forget this. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Or, level draining was just. Ooh. I actually saw a number of people leave the hobby over level draining. Oh, undead. wow. Okay. Yeah, that's. No bueno. We don't no. we don't play with that. No. That's one of the things that has greatly improved as the editions go on. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we had a good conversation today. I yeah. Think, I mean, the tangents that we went on were productive. Very much so, yes. So that, that was very helpful. Because so, I don't know how to not tangent. <laughs> Neither do I. That's yeah. why he keeps me around. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, that's why I have an itinerary whenever the two of us are doing episodes. Because <laughs> I can just ignore you and go back to the... <laughs> One of the things is, is that you're going to see a lot of it. The more creative the person is, the more creative the people you're speaking with, 
the more likely they are to go on these tangents because it's the same process. Right, yeah. yeah. The way the brain goes all over the place and comes back whenever it wants to. Like, my brain comes up with puns and stupid songs, and I have to share them with people right away, or it literally starts doing psychic damage. And it's all part of the same (laughs) brain function that makes me, I like to say, a good storyteller, a good game master, a good world builder. Absolutely. Because my brain is constantly creating, and I have to follow it where it goes or lose it. Right. Okay. So, one of the things that we like to do with our guests is a segment that we call the Monster Mashup where we roll some dice and we come up with some stuff off of our random table and we make a monster on the fly. All right. So if you're game and you've got your dice, I do go ahead and get started. I have actually slightly modified the table since last time we used it. I'm scared. I changed one category and I added a new category just to make make things a little bit more interesting. Okay. Chaos Woohoo. Chaos Woohoo. Let's go ahead and start (laughs) off with a D4 roll for locomotion. D4 locomotion. Okay. Chugga, 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 chugga. Steam powered. Two. Two. It runs. Okay. Steam powered could be a thing now. All right. right. D4 locomotion. It runs. Next is a D6 roll for what does it eat? Ooh. Potatoes. Three. Three. Insects slash vermin. Okay. Okay. So now we're looking something carnivorous, perhaps maybe an omnivore. Again, we can play fast and loose with the definition of vermin as well, or even the size of insects because they cover the whole range. So They do. This, uh, also, this... like you were pointing out, vermin can include all of the rodentia. Right. Yeah. Next is another D6 roll for size. This was mm-hmm. the one I modified. It used to be a D8 roll, and I got tired of six. Six? It's gargantuan. Okay. All right, so thing that's already in my head is a landbound filter feeder, but we'll move on from there first. Okay. Oh, I like that. Okay. Next up is a D8 roll for social organization. Okay, this should be interesting. Gargantuan social creatures. Four. Four. Family. Matriarch plus patriarch and offspring. Okay. I mean, okay. yeah, that makes sense. So and- two gargantuan parents and their offspring. The offspring don't have to be huge, the same huge, size. Huge size offspring. Yeah. They could be huge. They could be really tiny. It depends on um, yeah, it how depends they, on the life how cycle. It, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I like your idea of a filter off. feeder too. Something that maybe like takes a huge chunk of sod or soil and kind of like the whales have the brill and, mm-hmm. and or the krill. Yeah. The, the baleen. The krill, yeah. The baleen. baleen. There we go. Yeah. yeah. And they filter out the krill. I was mixing my words up. Yeah. But they could do that with the land. So they get this big chunk of earth and then they push maybe the earth and everything out and they're trapping all the insects and the creatures and mice or whatever. Well, behind. they're gargantuan. So their definition of vermin is the one we have to worry about here. Right. Yeah. First of all, um, but all the smaller creatures, you know, would be trapped yeah. behind this baleen that they would just kind of slurp up afterwards. So you're looking at things like moles and earthworms and grubs and rabbits <laughs> yeah, and, well, these things are gargantuan. So keep in mind, it could be taking out a bite of a huge section of forest. Yeah, yeah, and filtering all that. Yeah. Now, because it could conceivably be magical, depending on what we roll, right? It might not do any damage to oh. whatever it's not grabbing. Okay, that's like also it could, yeah. You know, the the baleen could pass through the plants and the ground and just magically filter. Holy crap! Spectral baleen. Well, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Okay. okay. I like that. All right. So this is going to inform a lot. Next is a D10 roll for native environment. That will answer a lot of these questions. Yes, it will. 
One. One. Arctic slash Tundra. Okay, now we're starting to make a lot of sense. Yes. Because a lot of your living things in an Arctic slash Tundra territory are hidden under the snow, yes. sometimes in the permafrost. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So they would, you know, be biting into the snow and filtering the snow through. Okay. Filtering all the snow, filtering the top layer of dirt and all that coming back out, possibly as a projectile okay. in some cases. Yeah. But it keeping all of the biological matter, in this case, if they're living in Arctic slash Tundra setting, it's probably going to keep all of the biological Yeah, because matter. it's yes. gargantuan, there's not going to be a whole lot there to begin with. So it needs every... Uh, there actually is tons of it, but it's all super tiny. This is really yeah. the yeah. appropriate feeding method for a creature in that area. Hey, this could be like, you know, we talked about the wolves going back into the ocean, becoming whales. This could be a whale type creature coming back to land. Right. Leviathan um, to behemoth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I also like, you know, again, if it's taking in this giant mouthful of ice and permafrost and then pushing it back out, something we might work on. I don't know if this is on Ian's new chart, but we could possibly give it like a cone of cold breath weapon as a defensive type thing or as an extra defensive type thing that when it's threatened, it'll grab and just. I don't necessarily think it would be a cone of cold, okay. although it might be a mixture of cold and bludgeoning. Okay. I think, yeah, I think it would be just a blast of debris. Debris? Okay. Right. One of the interesting things is, is very commonly we have a tendency to give creatures that live in the Arctic cold abilities. Right. But then we give all the other creatures that live in the Arctic cold resistance. Cold. Yeah. Yeah. So nobody would have that because it wouldn't do anything. Right. Well, I was meant just the cold from the actual snow itself, but bludgeoning would make a lot of sense as well. Mm -hmm. Or even well, forest the snow damage. itself is probably melting yeah. in the mouth of the creature. Mm -hmm. Granted. All right. Next up is a D12 roll for method of defense. All right. It's honking huge. That's its method of defense. Yeah. One of them. Eight. Eight. Okay. Acid slash venomous spray, a la spitting cobra. Nice. Ooh. Okay. I so uh, what I'm thinking is spitting, yes. So like the spitting cobra, because it projects it, right? Mm -hmm. But the actual foundation of it is more like the toxic bite of a Komodo dragon, meaning it's based entirely in the microbiota. Okay. Okay. Because it's filtering them all up to begin with, right? So yeah. it's grabbing all the things that live in the permafrost and in the tundra, and it's getting them into its mouth. So it's got this huge collection of super tiny organisms, some of which are big enough for it to digest. Okay. But then it's got all these other ones that are part of its digestive system. Okay. And like the Komodo dragon, when it bites you, it starts to do necrotic damage, or when it spits, it starts to do necrotic damage as those bacteria attack the tissue. I like and, it. Are and, we sticking with the spectral baleen idea or no? Because oh. if it had a physical baleen, then this also could be something it could do to like break down. Maybe like if there's a thick ice wall it can't get through, it could use that to help break down ice or maybe ice sheets or anything like that as well. Something like a um, antifreeze. I don't like know that the spectral baleen is as necessary when we're talking about the Arctic because you're okay. not doing the huge amount of territorial damage. damage you'd be doing, say, if they were in a forest. Okay. There's not nearly the uh, potential for collateral damage in the Arctic. Right. Yes. Right. Okay. Especially uh, since they're putting most of it back when they're done. Right. right. But yeah, I can see this not even necessarily as a defense method, but as a hunting method for if they come across something incredibly large. Okay. Yeah. So it's something like a herd of mammoths, something along those lines. They can hit one or two of these mammoths with this sort of paralyzing spit almost, and it incapacitates them so that they can't run away because I get the feeling that this thing isn't very fast. Because it right. doesn't, it doesn't run, run well. 
Neither is the Komodo dragon. That's the thing yeah. is that yeah. with Rampage the Komodo Dragon. dragon's quote unquote venom or toxin, it's not actually a poison. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a bacterium. But there are bacterium that can do what you're talking about in terms of having a paralyzing effect as well as doing damage. Yeah. Now, another thing we could. Yeah. I was going to say Pretty another much. thing we could throw in is, um, you know, we've had spitting monsters before, something like the Dilophosaurus from Jurassic Park, that first one. So it'll spray this venom or this toxic goo on whatever. And this can also be a hunting method. So if it paralyzes or disables something and it drops, then you are going to get vermin and carrion and other critters to feast on this corpse. And it can come up then and eat them as they're collecting. And it's on. eating all of it. It's eating yes. the corpse and the things mm-hmm. that are coming. Yes. It's a, actually a very cool way of attracting even more biomass. Right. So yeah. it's, it's very efficient. Yes. Mm-hmm. I like that. And it can afford to be patient. Yes. Absolutely. This thing, first of all, I think the breath weapon is almost certainly a cone. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Big yeah. spray cone because it's trying to get as many of the critters in it as possible. And then, it, you know, they are slowing down as they're trying to get away and creeping away and taking necrotic damage and being paralyzed. And it lumbers on up on them and it just starts eating. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily care if you're dead. Okay. <laughs> and it also, if it had this bludgeoning cone, it right. doesn't matter if the body is intact. Yeah. Because as long as all of the pieces are there, it's filter feeder. It's going to get all of the pieces and filter it all out. In specific there, what you're looking at is it doesn't even chew. No, yeah. it doesn't. It wouldn't chew at all. All of its chewing is happening outside with the enzymes. <laughs> Perfect, Almost yeah. Almost all its digestion is happening outside. The enzymes, the bludgeoning, it's basically like having an external gizzard. Okay. Throwing yeah, the gizzard at it. you. To break you up with rocks. Dude, I love that. That's beautiful. I love it. Okay. So yeah, it's basically got one big damn breath weapon thing. Yeah. That does bludgeoning, but also has a save versus paralysis and has ongoing necrotic damage. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. okay. So it doesn't have a bite at all. Yes. No, it just has a it swallow. Just yeah. It has a swallow. Exactly. It has an AOE swallow. <laughs> oh, oh, look. It swallowed the Goliath, the dwarf. And the half. <laughs> That's fine. Okay. Next is the new category. Next is a D12 roll for creature type. Ooh. This could change a lot of perspectives on this. And that's yes, one of the things could. I like about yeah. the you have here. Six. Six elemental. All right. I'm still feeling it. Yeah. It's an earth elemental. Yeah. So it's almost like an evolved Delver. Yeah, okay. Where the Delver was going through and consuming all of the metallic and crystalline portions in the stone as it passes through and digests its way through. This is instead doing the organics. Okay, going for the biomass. Mm -hmm. And now it doesn't need a spectral baleen because it itself is an elemental and now it's earth gliding. Yeah, absolutely. And so it just has an open mouth. The only thing it's not gliding through are its food. Okay. Yeah. So the things that, you know, aren't earth to glide through get trapped within the body and everything that is earth just passes through. Okay. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, that's a fun way to do this. That's not really is. That, that made this yeah, very, a, very elegant. I love it. It's a, it's a land whale shark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is nonetheless dangerous, unlike oh, an actual yeah. whale shark. Considering it spits on you to digest you, it's like a whale shark crossed with a sea cucumber. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Next is a D20 roll for quirks. I think this thing has enough quirks already, but let's roll it. <laughs> 13. Okay. Digs slash creates pitfall traps. I mean, 
probably not on purpose. Yeah. Yeah. But as it passes through the ground, if it hits an area that has a higher organic substrate density, okay, then once it's done through that area, there's going to be less ground there. Yes. It, it leaves sinkholes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that'd be great for the it passes through. through and basically, it takes out all the organic material, but you've still got the crystalline structure of the inorganic material. It's just not supported anymore. Right. And so, if it's and if it's permafrost, then it's the ice that's holding everything together. And, you know, that might hold up that halfling rogue, but it's not going to hold up, you know, the paladin when they're set a full plate as they go tromp, yeah. tromp, tromping across the frozen ground. I love that. No, that it, is It great. becomes one of the nasty things that actually happens in snow-covered territories where you think it's solid ground and suddenly you're actually 50 feet down in snow. Well, now it's happening mm-hmm. in dirt as well as ice because it's basically hollowed out the ground underneath you. Right. Yeah. And again, depending on how intelligent we want to make this thing, this could be part of its feeding or hunting method is it circles an area. And then as it comes through, so if things try to flee, they're going to fall and get caught in this trench that on a boundary makes kind of like the dolphins will surround a school of fish yeah, and kind of keep them kind of clustered. Cause again, they are a family unit. This could be a way that they teach the young to hunt. Oh yeah. Okay. So you've got your, as you're pointing out the family unit, the two bigger ones have been going earth gliding throughout this area, making this big, basically just a full fledged landmine. This entire tundra or taiga is nothing but possible fall in traps, right? Okay. Now the smaller versions of them, have not yet developed the ability to earth glide, maybe. Okay. So they're traveling along little tunnels along the sides and in between the holes, right? Okay. Okay. And when something falls in, the smaller spawn then jump them. I could see that. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like the difference between the two life cycles is like the big ones are filter feeders and this extra hunting method is more for their spawn than them because the little ones aren't filter feeders yet. Okay, no, I like that. Or they just aren't big enough to filter a sufficient quantity to sustain them. Yeah, okay, right. no, that makes so a lot of sense. So they have to have something bigger that they can just eat. Yeah. Okay. If they don't have a bite, they're just taking advantage of something that's fallen down, broken both its legs, and, yeah, and, and it's small they, enough they that still can have, hole. They still have that ability to you know, spit, spit that bile. Right. So the digestion is starting in the pit. Yeah. So it's right. necrotizing whatever it is that's down there. It's beginning to decompose it. And then it just sort of comes in and slurps it all up. That would make a vicious yeah. environmental hazard. You're walking through and not only do you fall through like a pitfall, but it has this bile in there. So you fall into a pit of acid, basically. Yeah. You fall into an open stomach. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now we make it weird. <laughs> now. <laughs> so now we need a D100 roll, please. All right, I need a drum roll. 44. 44. We've had this one before. Is highly nutritious. A hand-sized portion counts as a daily ration. No, that makes sense. It's concentrating all of the resources and all of the food sources in the region into itself. It would be considered a fantastic thing for extremely brave uh, locals to hunt because... It's concentrating all of the various nutritions you can possibly get in this area into one, which means its blubber is the most prized thing in the areas where it's found. Yeah. yeah. And this I would be like something to dine on, like kings would dine on this type thing. Oh, yeah. And you've got a potential conflict between the locals who are trying to use this as their primary way to survive and adventures being sent in by rich nobles and kings who just want it as a delicacy. Yeah. 
And I can see that the young are the targets of the hunt. Yeah, definitely. Because it would be Ooh, much, yeah, much easier. Because yeah. that would be something that is small enough to actually harvest and get out. Yes. Without a whole right. lot of waste. Right. Right. I like that. So if you have like a huge sized or even a large sized young one of these, you know, a hand sized portion is not very big. You can right. feed an army yeah. for a week off of one of these things. Yeah. yeah. You hunt these things and you don't have to hunt again for a couple of weeks for your entire tribe. Yeah. Yeah. Or even depending on the size of your tribe, you could kill one of these things and bring it back and preserve it. And you're good for the whole winter. Yeah. And here's an interesting notion. These creatures are familiar with the local tribesmen. And as long as the local tribesmen only take one of the young every now and then, there's no big deal. Yeah. And as soon as the adventurers come in, the adventurers come in from outside. Mom and dad are going to get real upset real quick. And now they start killing everybody because no yeah and then you know you get done with your venture out into the wilderness and you turn around and you go back and you're going to make a pit stop at that lovely local village that you passed through a week ago and you you discovered and you come back and it's flattened there's nothing left and then if these are cetacean in intellect level and in attitude these things follow you home. Yes, I was just going to go with that. They start tracking. Oh, yeah. And now the host kingdom of whoever, you know, that wanted this has to deal with that issue. You've just imported two subterranean swimming yes. tarasks. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. Oh, this was fun. So, James, do you want to do the second roll or do you want me to do the second roll? I've got my dice out for this one, so I think I'll do this one. Because chaos will do. That's right. So another D100? Yes. Okay. 30. 30. Its droppings are intensely addictive narcotics. That makes it even more likely <laughs> yeah, for the dumb civilized people to come in and hunt the damn things. And this makes sense too. I know in Siberian, like a lot of the reindeer will eat like the um, fly agaric mushrooms. Yep. And the intoxicating portions or the psychedelic portions are passed through the urine. So people will try to collect the urine because it passes through and you can just drink the urine and not deal with the mushroom. Because the uh, mushroom is highly toxic if you just eat it. Well, I mean, right, whereas too. the creatures have filtered out the toxins and just left the addictive and psychoactive substances. Yes. Right. Wow. Oh, yeah. This is great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so when they discover just how much of a gold mine these creatures are, three or four kingdoms are going to compete to send in. And then suddenly you've got whole groups of these things coming down to destroy civilization. Yeah, and, yes. and then you also have the colonial land war between all of these kingdoms, because you're going to, as, have, they're, going, as they're going to try to grab these things without realizing how dangerous they are. Yet. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The whole complicated campaign. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's great. Very angry Inuit equivalent Goliaths. Yes. Yeah. Love it. I love it. Okay, so just to recap, it runs, which it more earth lies now. We can do both. It's fine. Feeds on insects slash vermin. I think that became all biomass. Right. All biomass is is, is equally viable. It is gargantuan in size, has a family structure, so two parents plus offspring. It is native to Arctic slash tundra terrain. It has an acid slash venom spray. So it's the digestive enzymes that it sort of spits out at you. Right. It is an elemental. Remember, remember it does bludgeoning too, because it's spitting all the rocks and stuff all at the same time. Yes. I love mixture attacks that are doing multiple different damage types. I don't know why. They just make me feel good. (laughs) Hashtag flame strike. 
Um, yeah. <laughs> it digs slash creates pitfall traps unintentionally, but it does. Its flesh is highly nutritious. A handful sized portion acts as a full day's ration and its excrement is highly addictive narcotic. So the important question now is what do we call it? The snow cap. <laughs> I mean, we had the Landwell shark. Probably not the <laughs> best of names, but kind of fun. That was a joke. That was, yeah, that was that, I know, a, kind of fun. <laughs> that was not a serious suggestion. So the largest aquatic creature, mythologically speaking, is called Leviathan. Yes. Largest mythological creature on land was always called Behemoth. Is there a specific creature called the Behemoth in 5e already? I don't believe so. There's the Frog Behemoth. Right. There might be something where an X Behemoth is a monster subtype, kind of like the Warforged Colossus and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. There's a third party Behemoth, but it's completely homebrew. Like Very a, different. A glacial behemoth? Um, not glacial, but yeah, okay. using the sub name because it's not in glaciers. Right. Yeah, that, but, that's slightly different terrain type than tundra. But it might resemble a glacier coming across. Yeah. Well, no, it's it mostly underneath. True. True. The problem that you're having is that you're not going to actually see it coming, which is the other scary thing about it with something that size. Yeah. Yeah. So tundra behemoth. An ice flow? No, because again, it doesn't have ice as part of anything that it does yeah well i was thinking where you have the ice floods especially in the arctic where the ice shelves start breaking and you have that where that whole section of terrain starts shifting and moving you would see that i presume where this thing would travel Hmm. trying to think of like something geological with this because i mean it's huge i know i I see where you're going there you're looking for a term for the movement like yeah like a much smaller version of the tectonic plate well it's not even the tectonic plate like i said it's literally when the ice shelves start melting in the summertime and they start cracking so you'll have the whole sections of the ice plate that shift off and become icebergs basically right and you actually do get some of the melting of the permafrost with the permafrost dipping in much tamer version of what we already talked about right yeah that's just called cavitation um see this is always the hardest part this is the hard part i like tundra behemoth cavitor behemoth i think tundra behemoth is probably the best option so far yeah Mm -hmm. because i get a feeling that this is something that they're going to reference where they find it Right. Yeah. Most things. Yeah. 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 This is a description. You know, when they first saw Bruce Banner get huge and green, you know, they called him the Incredible Hulk. Right. So, yeah, the first thing they're going to realize is they're going to look up at this thing and go, oh, God, it's a behemoth because it's the biggest thing they've ever seen. Right. Yeah. In the tundra. And it's a tundra behemoth. It, okay. it, yeah. It's yeah. The tundra. That works. Okay. Also, it's going to look like a more cetacean version of the boulette. Yeah. Okay. I like that. Yeah, it's going to have that same sort of shape to it. Okay. I picture it as being a little more square, a little more blocky, at least on the front end. Because it is Mm -hmm. a filter feeder, it's going to want to widen. Yeah. Right. And the front end could be vaguely sperm whale shaped. Yeah. That makes sense. Because what's fun about that is we're giving it the profile of one of the biggest predators in the ocean. Yes. With that blocky square front end. But it's a filter feeder. But it yeah. is still one of the biggest predators, like, anywhere. Yeah, yeah. No, I like that. I like that a lot. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. That was. I really enjoyed that one. So the other thing that we like to ask our guests is to give a shout out to someone else in the community. It can be a content creator, an artist, a musician, just someone in the TTRPG sphere. Who would you like to give a shout out to today? I would like to shout out Drake from at Lion Knight 42 
for all the hard work that he is doing with his Tales from the Table and uh, Days of Tales for reproductive rights. Very nice. Which he is doing to support the NNAF National Abortion Fund. I'm running a couple of actual plays as part of that next month, one of which will include some of my homebrew monsters because I'm running a 5e game set in my own world of the successor states of Rega. And uh, I'll be letting people know when that premieres. Okay, yeah, we're going to ask where we could find that actual play. In the next week or so, we should be talking about the cast for both my 5e successor states of Rega actual play, which is Tomb of Sorrows. Okay. And then my GURPS 4E, GURPS Horror, Old West game, Terror at Bone Gulch. Nice. All right. And last but not least, we're going to give you the floor and let you promote yourself. So where can we find you? Where can we find your stuff? (laughs) The floor is yours. Thank you. Like I said, on Twitter, I'm at Jack Gogsbane, which is G-O-G-S-B-A-N-E. You can find me as Jack the Giant Killer all over the place. Find me as Jack Kellum on Facebook. My Facebook page is Jack of Tales. I'm on TikTok as of Gods and Game Masters. I'm on Instagram as Jack Gogsbane. My actual website is of Gods and Game Masters.com and it has all of my third party materials, all of my homemade. 5e monsters gurps monsters pathfinder 1e monsters big bads and characters are all there well i mean all the ones that i did for free i have a store page as well with some things that are uh, for sale like my beastkin vampires which are Ooh. a group of 5e monsters that are all animals who have come back from the dead for revenge on humankind <laughs> nice i like it I- i'm getting a whole pet cemetery vibe on this one yeah there are nine different ones they're part of an overarching group and uh that's available on my store my gods of rega collections available on my store i have spells of eloquence which is like eight or nine new bard spells also for my rega setting that would be a fun thing to do for like a uh animal rights ASPCA type life play would be great. Mm-hmm. That w- yeah, that would be awesome. <laughs> yeah, it goes from each one is a type of vampire and okay. they're in a larger social structure ranging from the bottom end, which is the wolf soul who are all CR three, but they hunt in packs Okay, all the way to the tiger heart. Who's a CR 14 uh, humanoid nice. vampire. Okay. With there's a snake, there's a panther, there's all types of creatures that are unfairly, seen as villains by mankind okay i like it so things that shouldn't have been killed but were like there's a frog type of vampire because people wrongly associate them with plagues right things like that okay no i like that all right well jack thank you very much for coming and joining us today on under common taste it's been an absolute blast yeah this has been a lot a lot of fun thank you Thank you for having me. I had a great deal of fun myself. I would like, can you send me the write-up of that monster we just made? That's going to be one of our free write-ups on our Patreon once I get it written. Awesome. Absolutely, yes. Cool, because yeah, I want to see that. (laughs) Like, if you're not physically writing it down as... Oh no, we we do. Every single guest-created monster gets put up on our Patreon. Yes. Awesome. Some of them take a little while, but all of them make it up there. Yes. Sweet. I'll be glad to see it. And thank you, everyone, for joining us tonight and listening in and watching. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email under taste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitch, and YouTube. Just search under Common Taste. Uh, you can find all of our write-ups on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. If you'd like to help support the show financially, please come and consider becoming a patron. Finally, we are also on Discord. 
There's a link to the Discord in our show notes, and we would love to have you come over and chat with us. If this is your first time listening to us, welcome. We're glad you found us. You can find our podcast wherever you get your podcast. As always, please subscribe and give us a like and a review. This increases our visibility and lets us know what you want to hear more of. Jack, did you have one last thing you wanted to add? One last thing. Okay. Yeah, I was reminded of my Patreon. I would no. really, <laughs> I also have a Patreon and a Ko-Fi under Of Gods and Game Masters. And I could really use the support. This is what I do for a living. I don't do anything else other than take care of my house and baby. So... Awesome. And we will be including links to your stuff in the show notes. Absolutely. I greatly appreciate that. Once again, thank you everyone for joining us. Stay safe and we will see you next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash davidsutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.